Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 116, recorded February 23rd, 2013. So this is our 54th 90s episode, and today we're doing something a little different where we have uh, Star Trek The Next Generation special number one. And uh, the start off of a Deep Space Nine miniseries called Hearts and Mind. So we'll do the first issue of that. Cool. So on paper, it looks like it's going to be a short episode with only two books. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, uh, that first one, the special number one, is actually three stories into one. Count them. Three, 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 three. And it's not like it's three short stories. They're, they're Two of them are normal comic book links, and then one of them's fairly short. Right. That's still but, a lot of meat. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, with the miniseries that we're going to start off today, next week, episode 117, will be Countdown to Darkness 3 and The Ongoing. So you won't get the conclusion of this miniseries until episode 118. So you'll have to wait a little bit to find out what happens to Cisco and the Cardassians. And the Klingons, yes. Unfortunate, but hey, I'm looking forward to more of the countdown. Right. Well, not only that, but we're only, at the time this is released, we're only four weeks away from the movie coming out. So I'm kind of excited about that. <laughs> Good point. All right. So next week, countdown number three. So we doing the special first? Yeah, let's do the special first. Okay. So uh, I fortunate enough to do this one. So figured we would do the same thing we've done other times that there was multiple stories in one issue. We'll do the synopsis for one story and then talk about it and then the second and third story. Sound good? Great. Let's do it. First up is Star Trek Next Generation Special Number 1. This came out sometime in 1993. Not sure what the exact month was. It's actually made up of three stories. So the first one is Good Listener, and it's written by Tony Isabella and Bob Ingersoll. Pencilers Daryl Skelton and Steve Carr. Inker Jim Amash. Letterer Bob Panaha. Colorist Stuart Chafzins. And editor is Alan Gold. The cover also tells us that there's a second story called A True Son of Kalis. Kenneth Penders and Anne Warzowski is the writers. Penciler is Kenneth Penders. Inker Romeo Talgogal. Letterer Bob Pinaha. Colorist Trish Mulvillehill. And editor is Alan Gold. And the title for the third story is entitled Spots Day. Written by Diane Duane. Penciler Rod Wingham. Inker Mike Sellers, letterer Bob Panaha, colorist Rick Taylor, editor Alan Gold. So all these three uh, stories are listed there on the cover. Uh, the cover is actually, um, uh, I'm going to start from the bottom and go to the top. 
the bottom shows a picture of Spot the Cat with Data a good distance behind him and walking towards the feline. Above that is Guinan with a yellow monkey on her back. Above that, Alexander's face staring right at the reader's soul. And above him, Worf's head looking up into the sky. So the first story is Good Listener. Starts off with a green-skinned alien being chased by whip-claw spiders. These are very nasty-looking creatures. He makes his way into the colony's newly-minted tavern and pleads with the barkeeper to save his life. He has just enough time to yell for Guinan as the creatures overtake him and he falls to the floor. Everyone at the bar is staring at the man who just burst in and fell to the floor, writhing for no apparent reason to them. Guinan's personal log informs us that she is there as a favor to the leader of the colony to help start up this watering hole. The leader, whose name is Dalgalon, is a yellow alien with a huge head crest. He is worried since more and more of his people are becoming incapacitated due to the hallucinations. Guinan says that she will contact her friends on the Enterprise for some help. As Guinan leaves Dalgalon, two human men come in. One with an orange monkey in his arms. The one with the monkey seems to be trying to impose restrictions on the mining colony to help the indigenous monkey creatures. Soon, the Enterprise arrives and drops off Riker, Crusher, Worf, and a married team that consists of Donna and Steve Stein, and many other random support staff that we'll never hear from. We learn that Steve is a telepath, that he's reluctant to use his powers, and that Donna is very career-motivated woman. Crusher's scans confirm that the hallucinations are not caused by anything in the atmosphere. She and the colony leader walk through the busy camp as the Federation crew start to unpack and we see little monkeys scurrying all about. Donna is unpacking her gear when she starts to get an uncomfortable feeling of homesickness for Earth. It is so overpowering that she falls to the ground in unstoppable sobs. Steve is able to sense that she's in trouble and he races to her aid. In the medical ward, Crusher cannot find anything wrong with her. Donna finds it hard that she had such strong feelings since she was born on a ship and has only visited Earth once or twice a year. Once everyone leaves, Donna and Steve have an argument about Steve not using his powers more. She thinks that he could use them to advance his career. He does not want to do this, Plus, if he moved up in rank, it would be less likely that they would be on the same ship, and he wants to stay with his wife. Steve has a conversation about his woes with Guinan, and she tells him that the couple needs to listen to one another. In the bar, a barroom brawl starts when everyone starts acting like a speciest. Humans are calling Worf the murderous lobster, and other such... Uh, nonsensical terms. The fight stops when Riker starts stunning many of the combatants with his phaser. Donna has a conversation about her woes with Guinan, and Guinan tells her that the couple needs to listen to one another. Sound familiar? It should. Crusher and Riker meet with the ruling council at the mining planet. Dalgalon and the two humans from earlier. They suggest that they should quarantine the whole planet. 
the two human leaders suggest that the ore is the only thing keeping the Federation in business. Crusher and Riker also inform them that they are going to be forced to shut down the bar until the crisis has been solved. As time goes by, more people start to hallucinate. One guy is shown being crushed by walls. Worf is seen fighting with the Borg. And Crusher is wrought with grief about the loss of her husband and Wesley. Donna and Steve are having a fight, and with the mention of their honeymoon, they are both filled with passion. Then Steve thinks that he knows what's happening. He walks out into the opening, and he calls out with his mind. Suddenly, many of the monkeys all converge at his location. The monkeys now know that he knows that they've been causing all the hallucinations. Sometime later, we learn that the monkeys were once an advanced civilization that at some point rejected technology and reverted back to their simpler existence. They were only using their powers to get the colony off-planet. Riker states that the colony will have to leave due to the Prime Directive. Steve and Donna make up for their fighting. Donna now sees that her drive to succeed is not as important as the two of them staying together as much as possible. The end. And then the final uh, shot is like a pinup of Yar fighting the oil monster that uh, kills her. Yes, the skin of evil. I like that picture. That's that's a good drawing. Yeah, I didn't know where to put the uh, pinup synopsis, so I just it was at the end of this story, so I just put it at the end. <laughs> good spot. Good spot. Uh, yeah, it's I always hated that she died because of you know an, a point. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, so you, you thought maybe she should have had a, a better end. Right, right. Yeah, and, and they talk about that in yesterday's Enterprise. I mean, the, the fact that she should have had a better ending. Right. But it points out the fact that when you're traipsing about the uh, universe, there's so many things that could happen, or the galaxy, I should say. It's right. very you could You could die in very random ways. So. And I think I have a comment similar to that in the next issue. That uh, I think some people in the next issue should be dead. <laughs> okay. We'll talk. So, uh, emotionally controlling monkeys. Yes. Mind reading, almost Telosian esque, although a lower grade of telepath, kind of uh, monkeys, primates. Hmm. Interesting. I've never heard of, we've never read a story like this before. It's amazing. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're you're referring to the Telosians or or what what Not specifically? Only that, but there was the Bandy story that uh, that we read, which was one of the original. It was originally going to be a uh, original series episode by what's his name, D- David? Who wrote Trouble with Tribbles? David Gerald. David Gerald, right? So he wrote it for the original series, but it never got made into an episode, and we read it as. One of the manga issues. Oh, right. Okay. The little teddy bear that got everybody to... Oh, right. Yeah, right. The teddy bear. The right. bear. So it's a teddy bear that controls emotions. And before that, we read one of the Peter Pan records where it was a little cat creature that did the same thing. Or made everybody on the Enterprise enhance whatever their emotions were at the time to a point where they were incapacitated or causing injury to other people. Right. And both of those stories predate this one. So I'm just saying, somebody wasn't being all that original. 
Yeah, interesting how Guinan was the main Enterprise character that was the center of this story. Yeah, but unfortunately she wasn't used very well. She had well, two conversations with the two married couples, yep. and she gave basically the same advice. You need to listen to you as a couple. Need, need to listen. And then she has the exact same conversation with the woman later. Yep. You as a couple need to listen to each other. Yep. And that was it. Because that's, that's what she does. That's her living. She listens to people while getting them inebriated. But she does have some sort of telepathic, some sort of powers, or it's implied that she does. Yeah. Knew that the yesterday's Enterprise thing happened. and Yep. They could have used her in a more interesting fashion than I thought they did. Yeah. At this point. Well, yeah, and, and quite frankly, <laughs> you bring in an expert to set up a bar? <laughs> really? Do you need an expert for that? Well, it was just, they were friends. Well, yeah, it probably was more that than anything, but really. And it was a vacation. It wasn't like it was a paid or it's not a paid thing. There's right. no there's no money in the future. But it was like, okay, well, whatever. Bring in the expert in the bar, the bar expert. I don't know. It was I thought it was just kind of a weird excuse to have Guinan be one of the main characters. I agree. I I, I liked at first that Guinan was going to be there. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be great." Mm-hmm. We get to see more of her. But then right. I'm like didn't really use her all that well, and the first thing she does is, I'll call my friends from the Enterprise, and they'll yeah. take over the story from here. <laughs> I'm use her. Yeah. That uh, was a little disappointing. Right. And it's like, they mustn't have had anything else to do, I guess, except to come back for her, who's on vacation, and helping this colony deal with things. So They just pop her off, and they, they keep going. Yeah. And also, I'm kind of wondering about the authority levels. I mean, Riker is making decisions about shutting down the bar and making these decisions that I thought would be more the privy of the people that are leading the mining operation or the colony, you know, the civil, the local civil folks. Right. So, I mean, that's fine. I'm used to seeing Riker in command of things. It's just, isn't there any local jurisdiction? I mean, what? I don't know. Well, I could see that once they find out that it's a medical crisis, then maybe Starfleet would then have had the final say-so in certain things. Yeah. But no, I got you. It just just seems a little odd. And another thing is, why... Okay, so maybe the first guy's a a real bar fly, and he's used to dealing with Guinan or something, even though they just opened the the bar, supposedly. But he runs right to the bar and right to Guinan to save him. Well, why Guinan? Because we don't know that other guy yet. Uh, well, don't they have, like, maybe a constable? Or <laughs> at least the leader of the place. And yes, that's the guy you're saying we haven't met yet? Right. Yeah, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, she's a stranger to the colony or mining operation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, she hasn't been there long, and I know she's very likable, but it's like, anyway, it just seems weird. Nope, I'm not going to argue with that. That and another thing I thought was weird is that when those two humans, the one who has the monkey and the one that doesn't, when they're mm-hmm. first introduced, one of them wants to put more restrictions on the colony. Yes. So that it would help the monkeys out. And the other one is like, oh, we can't do that because, you know, we got to make the ore. And then later, right. when, when Riker's trying to close them all down, the guy who has the monkey is the one saying, if you stop 
stop us from making this, or the Federation is going to be broken because we're that important to the Federation, which I never even heard what they were mining, so I don't no. know what he's talking about. But I did think it was funny that the one that was all about restrictions earlier is now we can't hinder ourselves at all. And then later, when we find out that the monkeys are covered by the Prime Directive, they're all like, well, we got to do what we got to do. You know, like, well, is the Federation going to go under now because they can't have this war? You you changed your tune pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, they were just doing things just to move the story along. You know, at first you want to you want to give a reason why the operation has to go on more than just so the one guy is all about money. You know, we got to keep on expanding the operations, mining the ore, whatever. We'll make more money. And then the other guy, who I thought was a Federation representative in some way, was like, "Oh, I'm Mister Ecology. You can't hurt the animals and stuff." Uh, right. And so. They're both annoying, uh, and and both at two ends of a spectrum. But then you're right. I mean, they set all this stuff up, and then they completely turn it around later. And yeah. I do find it funny at the end when they're in communication through the telepath guy, security guy, with these little critters, where they're basically the green ecology guy was saying, oh, and I'll stay with the with the local guys and help them get back to normal. And then the local little monkey guys are saying, Screw you. Get out of here. We don't want you around either. We want all you guys gone. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd forgotten that part when I was writing the synopsis. Yeah, that, I, I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> hey, annoying ecology guy, you're, you're gone too. We don't need you. Anyway. When Beverly has her little dream, mm-hmm. and she feels you know, bad that her husband's dead and her son's gone... It shows like a flash of like I guess Christmas or something there in the in their household when Wesley's the little guy. Right, and then it shows the husband in the Starfleet uniform. Right, but it looks like they show Wesley picking up like this huge boulder type thing. It looks like it has trees on it. What is that a picture of? I don't know. I'm moving back to that. Uh, it's <sighs> on page 19 <clears throat> on the PDF. It's page 12. Oh right, yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It makes no sense. <laughs> it's like, what's the so so Jack, the husband, I think it was Jack. Mm-hmm. He's just like on his knees, pointing at her, and it at first it looks like he's waving, but actually his fingers are closed down on his on his hand. It's very odd, like he's holding onto a phaser or something. Yeah, like and an then, invisible yeah, phaser. Wesley, and then Wesley's. Yeah, I didn't know what the hell that was. It looks like a big rock or part of a... Uh, a cliff or something. Of, yeah. It's like, what? Okay, are, are they trying to are they trying to get across the point that this is a dreamlike weirdness thing? I don't know. I don't know uh, well, It's supposed to be some sort of wrapping paper that he's just pulled off or a present, but then why does it look like yeah. it has trees on the top? Yeah, it's very odd. Yeah, okay. it, looks like, it looks like part of the ground. <laughs> Which makes no sense. So no, they're in their uh, living room yeah. by the Christmas tree, and Wesley is pulling up boulders. Yeah, and, yeah, that and makes again, sense. Wesley's like like three years old in this or something. Yeah, he has a little bit of a tummy on him. Yeah, yeah. Wesley definitely was a was a chunky kid, a ba- <laughs> uh, toddler, whatever. Uh, uh, so there's anything well, wrong with that? No, not at all. I was a chunky toddler myself. So another thing that I thought was kind of odd how they drew it was on page seven, the security guy with the with telepathic powers, Steve. Steve, yes, uh-huh. he is 
he's got this smirky kind of look on his face and he's saying something about his wife and his marriage and Crusher is right behind him very close and like smelling his cologne or something I'm not quite sure I thought she was checking his butt ah could be that too either way okay fine so he's checking she's checking out his butt what is going on there the strange picture that's a very strange picture it looks like she's getting getting ready for some uh, some closeness with him or something I don't know that is a uh, odd photo. Yeah, it's like, why why draw it that way? So I kind of like at the very end where Guinan is kind of testing the one of the little monkey guys, what, to- mm-hmm. Tordo, I guess his name is. And to test the little creature, whether he's reading her mind or not, Guinan thinks a thir- certain thought that makes the little guy run off in fear. So it's like, I wonder what, and that's how they ended the story. So I wonder what Guinan's actually thinking. But I could figure out what was going on for explaining it. Yes. So she must have thought about something like maybe uh, fricasseeing a little monkey guy or something <laughs> that, that made the little guy run off in fear. And then she says, gotcha. Right, right. Yep. I don't know. But they're out there very tasty. Me too. But she just she's just messing with his mind, literally. <laughs> if you're going to be in my mind, I'm going to mess with yours. What else you got on this one? Nothing. I'm commented out. Me too. Except for, what is a lobster? I never heard that as in reference to Klingons. Well, is it supposed to be a reference to their forehead? I've always heard them called turtle heads, but I've never yeah. heard lobster. I don't know. Me okay. neither. But that's apparently what the uh, what the author came up with. Yeah, Lapju. All right. So the next story is called A True Son of Kalis. And yes, that's how you have to pronounce it. All right. It has. What, um, son? No, you have to say it like True Son of Kalis. Oh, okay. With emotion. There you go. Right. All right. So Kenneth Penders and Anne. Workanotsky, or the writers, probably mispronounced that one. Kenneth Penders is the penciler. Romeo Tangle is the inker. Bob Panaha is the letterer. Trish Mulvenhill is the colorist, and the editor is Alan Gold. Worf and Alexander are in spacesuits floating below the Enterprise D. Eventually, the stars and ship are replaced with the grid lines of the holodeck, and the two Klingons depart the room. On the bridge, Worf and Data share a strange glance. Then, Worf goes into Picard's ready room and asks for a few days off at the local planet. Picard agrees. Later, Riker sees Worf and Alexander to the transporter pad. The two Klingons are then beamed to the planet, and they're roughing it with only a backpack of provisions. Once on the planet and during their hike, a large cat-hog creature stalks them. Worf has them hold their ground and stare it down. Eventually, it relents and leaves them. Worf says it would have sensed any fear. That night, the two make a campfire, and Worf is telling his son stories about Kalis. On the bridge of the Enterprise, Geordi stares longingly at Picard and Data. 
Eventually, Data states that Geordi is right, and that the planet Worf is on is about to collide with another planet in only six hours. The upcoming collision is causing storms and interference on the planet, so they cannot beam away the two Klingons. Picard orders Crusher and Riker to take a shuttle down to get them. On the planet, the storms are very fierce. Worf is struck with a flying tree and knocked out. The shuttle is able to make a very rough landing, but they cannot pinpoint the location of the two Klingons in the maelstrom. Alexander has made a very impressive stretcher out of vines and sticks. He puts Worf on it and starts to drag him towards some nearby caves. A vision of Alexander's mother gives him the strength he needs to make it. Once safe, Alexander fires up a transporter beacon and awaits for help. Worf wakes up and tells the boy how happy he is with him. He tells Alexander that he is a real Klingon now, a true son of Kalis. Tears freely fall from the two Klingons' eyes, despite the lack of their tear ducts. Thanks to McCoy for letting us know that they don't have them. The away team soon finds them, and they return to the ship. As Worf and his son return to their quarters, Alexander is already planning their next outing. And at the end of this story, there is a pinup of various Star Trek Next Generation crew members. So just a montage of their heads. Right. And a Not... bunch of folks that are in, the, uh, in these stories, in this book, and some that aren't. Right. So we get to see Wesley and Ensign Rowe and O'Brien. Right. Which we don't see them very often. No. Cool. And Wesley's so got... Wesley's got quite the adult do going. The almost the Han Solo look in the hair department. Yeah. 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 So anyways, what did you think of this one? Uh I thought it was great. Or I thought it was good. I, I, I like seeing uh, some some father son time with Alexander and Worf. That was cool. Uh-huh. And definitely that Alexander was able to rise to the challenge and save his father. Right. I I also enjoyed that part. The parts that I didn't really care for was, oh my god, the planet's about to collide with another planet. Yeah, and see that one I, coming. Can I mention that they're not colliding, but they're going to be close enough in proximity that the gravitational thing from the much larger neighbor is gonna gonna mess with the uh, the smaller planet that they're that they're on. Jordy is correct. Talia three's orbit will co- collide with that. Oh, inside. Oh, that's not an L. <laughs> what when you read on PDFs, you gotta sometimes you gotta make it a little bit larger, otherwise right. some letters right. kind of blur together. Okay, yes, we'll coincide. Yeah. So this didn't they say something about this happening once a year or something? Um, you know, or once in its orbit. Well, whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it happens every. Yeah. Right. Several times. Right. So yeah. So the big gravitational forces from the big neighbor is uh, apparently what's mucking with the uh, weather and whatever. All right. Well, I have less problem with that now. Yeah. Oops. My bad. That's that's fine. But um. Yeah. Jordy didn't say anything. Let's, yeah, I know. Jordy so, so, so Data's Data's doing the whole <laughs> Data's doing the whole rundown. Yeah. But there is a picture of Jordy 
And it looks like there probably should be some word bubbles there because it just shows Jordy with his mouth open staring at him on right. page seven. And then the next thing that anybody says is, Jordy is correct. Is he? What did he say? <laughs> <laughs> they chose not to show you that part of the story. That's the second time they did a weird thing like that. Earlier, they had that scene where Data is like looking at Worf for on page three for a long time without you know, being spoken, and then Worf just turns around and walks towards the bridge or towards I, the ready room. I completely agree with that. Uh, and, and I, but I wrote it down as it's like. They, they just show a picture of each other. Not necessarily, I thought, not necessarily that they're looking at each other, but they just seem to be two gratuitous shots in the middle of the page, one of Data and one of Worf, not necessarily looking at each other, well, but if you just, look at the, just close-ups. Look at the panel above yeah. that. Yeah. And that it does show Data setting at the science station and oh, it, that's, standing over him. Well, okay, and I don't I don't see that as being Data. The guy well, if who you look seated, at the picture of Data, he's definitely setting at the science station in the close-up. Well, you don't know Data. Well, well, look at the background. He's not at his con station. Okay, well, okay, look at the background. The background and the upper panel, and I can't believe we're spending this time doing this. The <laughs> the, the the layout of the station. That 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 guy's head, and by the way, he's so small that you really can't tell if it's data or not. And he's colored wrong. It, well, his hair isn't. His hair's brown instead of black. And his skin is pink and not yellow. Exactly. And the display on the background looks more like it's plotting orbits of something. Where if you look at the backdrop to the close-up of data, you know, the background's different. So I don't. Uh, I agree, but. But I I took it that it was miscoloration on the top part and that okay. the screen changed before it showed the close up of data uh, okay, staring longingly at. at <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah that that that's very possible. But the main <laughs> point is in the middle of the page, it's just a close up of those two, no words, no. And, and it's like, and they're two different kind of panels next to each other. And it's like, what's this doing here? <laughs> it's like they just need to fill up some space in the middle. I mean, wh- wh- why don't they make the back, the, the upper one, a little larger so that you can actually draw Riker properly? His Riker's head is so small it looks looks like a garbage picture of him, garbage yeah. drawing of him. Anyway, yeah, I right. Yeah, it, it, it those two shots where it has what you probably should have had dialogue and didn't uh, really kind of threw me off. Right. Well, maybe the eyes tell it all. <laughs> They're just communicating exactly. telepathically. Exactly. Data, you're the only one powerful enough on the ship to be with me. <laughs> yes, whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, but the main point is that the two panels are just thrown in there for no reason that makes any sense, whatever. No, it does not. Yeah. So, and uh, I mean, the only redeeming quality on that page, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. again, it's just my opinion. We get to see uh, Steve Stein. Yeah. Yep. So I thought it was kind of at cool least at least it looks up. like the same guy. But the thing is, he's is he at navigation or pilot station? Um, he's at the pilot station. Okay. I thought he was a security guy. What's he driving the ship for? <laughs> hey, Worf used to drive the ship. 
yeah, and they get cross-trained. I get that. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, good point. I hadn't thought about that part. Okay, whatever. I was like, hey, that's kind of cool that they brought him back. <laughs> right, some continuity. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was all the same issue, but whatever. Right. Um, yeah. So, again, I got to ask, how does Worf know so much about what plants they can and can't eat on a totally new alien world? Now, now right. mind you, maybe there's previous survey teams that have been there but he's talking about like oh well we'll eat thee we live off the land and eat these things and uh, it's like yeah and he's even well, like these are nutritious but they taste horrible we'll have them for dinner <laughs> you know like, do they actually tell you in the surveys which ones taste horrible uh, I don't know I don't know but I mean he's he's talking like like Mr. Experience Mountain Man it's like Right. You know, it, it, unless there's some kind of thing where all plants are the same on all these different random planets, how could you possibly know what's edible and not? But whatever. Yes. So when I was talking last issue, yeah. that there would be a scene in this one that that I think they should have died and yet didn't. Oh, that, is it? There's no, there's no way he would have known. Uh, I mean, maybe he would know how that creature would act because maybe all mountain lions act the oh, same. Oh, right. But there's no way he should have known which of those things would have tasted good or was poisonous or whatever. Yeah, good, good point about the animal. Yeah. And so. by the way, the animal looks a little like a javelina. Oh, does to me. But I mean, not quite like a javelina, of course. He's got human eyes for Cripe Pete's, but um. Yeah, oh, a little, a little like a javelina. Has human eyes look at that real quick. Well, yeah. So, yeah, yeah whatever. A lot of there. Um, he yeah, and he's got big thing, right? Yes. Although I, I think it's, I think javelinas are more like rats. I mean, family of rats, not pigs. But whatever. I like thought a, like a cross between like mountain. And a boar of some sort. Right, boar. He looks like a boar, especially with the tusks coming out of the lower jaw. Mm. Yeah. I thought it was a little odd on page 12 when Riker and the rescue team that land with the shuttle. Mm-hmm. They come out of the ship, and they got a storm to contend with, of course, while they're trying to find Worf and Alexander. And they got their phasers out. What, are you going to shoot the wind? I mean, what, <laughs> what do you need your phasers out for? Well, yeah, he and the security guy has their phasers out, and the two women have tricorders. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Maybe, maybe is, uh, flying javelina dogs? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Seems a bit odd, though. Something that I liked, and, and I know for, for the sake of time, you probably just uh, skipped over it, but towards the end of the story... Everyone's like fawning over Alexander and what a great job he did saving his father and everything. Right. And Worf begins to have a funny look on his face. And then by the last panel, you see Worf grimacing as he's walking away with Alexander. And Picard and Riker and Beverly are back at the shuttle as, as the other two are walking away. And Picard says, thank you for saving my security chief. <laughs> and then Riker and Beverly are laughing, and then Worf has this, this look on his face like, oh, God, I'll never live this down. So uh, I kind of like that. Yeah. That no, humor at the end. And then I liked how 
the part that I thought was the funniest though was was Alexander already planning their next outing. Yeah, yeah, I that mean was... that's typical kid fashion. You you take them to the the big great amusement park, and instead of just thanks, Dad, for taking me to that music park, there. So next time when we go to the other one, exactly. Like really, <laughs> <laughs> can we not finish this one first? No, there's I, no I, basking I, in the moment. There's there's just more. <laughs> the more the more gene kicks in. Yeah, so I thought I, that's what I thought was really funny on that last yeah. last part. Yeah, I definitely thought I, I I forgot about the whole tear duct thing that you mentioned in the synopsis. But I was just thinking towards the end when Alexander and Worf are, are crying. It's like okay, fine. Alexander crying, fine. You know he he's been raised kind of human, so that's fine. But Worf crying, it's like, come on. Come on. He's a big old battle Klingon. Come on. You say that every time they show him crying. I know, and he doesn't like flowers either. I'm sorry. If he's supposed to be a Klingon, he's not going to like flowers, and he's not going to be crying. I'm sorry. <sighs> Klingons don't cry, and they don't like flowers, damn it. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, I, I... Ever since they said that in Star Trek uh, Six, I... I can't not remember that. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's like this big red flag every time it shows anybody crying, and it shouldn't. I, I should should not have that stuck in my head. But once they re- once they did that, I I can't forgive them. Yeah, because I'll tell you, it's kind of a uh, a super geek fandom uh, moment for you. <laughs> Is that Excuse right? me, sir. Excuse me. Don't you realize that Klingons do not have tear ducts? Excuse yes, me. That's what I'm going for. Yes. It, it's validation for all this this hard work and wasted <laughs> wasted memory. Right. Exactly. Uh, that's funny. So I can finally one up the writers. Uh, exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. What else? Got? That's all I got. That's it. That's all I got. Well, go ahead. Mister, I got a whole bunch of stuff to say. Oh, that was it. That I was thought it. so. You and were I running out. Of, you were running out of gas too. I have less to say about the next one. Well, let's go for it. I have less to say too, but let's do it. All right. So the next story is called Spots Day. Writer is Diane Duane, who is a very prolific Star Trek writer. Penciler is Rod Wingham. Inker Mike Sellers. Letterer Bob Panaha. Colorist Rick Taylor. And editor is Alan Gold. Data is feeding Spot when Worf pays a visit to talk about some survey analysis that Data is working on. While the two talk, Spot slips through the door. He ends up sneaking into the turbo lift, unseen by Picard and Riker who are aboard. Somehow the two men never even see the cat at their feet. The cat leaves the turbo lift and sneaks into the holodeck just as Geordi and Crusher depart it. They were running a swamp program of some sort and left it on. Spot lounges on a branch for a while and then springs at a nearby bird only to be stalked by a much larger tiger. Spot hisses and scares the much larger cat away just as the holodeck doors open and Data and Troy find the little guy. They speculate how the captain would feel about a cat roaming the halls of his ship. Spot then thinks to himself, His ship? You mean my ship. The end. How nice. The little cat gets to do something. Have a little a little adventure. Yes. 
And I did paraphrase a little bit what he was thinking to himself, but he does actually think to himself. So I think that was funny that Spot actually had uh, some thoughts that we could read. And then there's two little quotes there, which I thought the first quote was kind of, uh, okay, so they have the Hamlet quote. Mm-hmm. Let Hercules himself do what he may. The cat will mew, and dog will have his day. So I thought that was uh, kind of cute. But then this other thing, this, there's another little quote here. It says, dog includes cat. And in parentheses it says, governmental edict, Earth, mid-20th century. What's that about? No idea. I've never heard dog includes cat. Yeah, so when referring to pets, dogs and cats, you can just call them all dogs? It's like weird. I never heard heard of it before. Never heard of it. So, a cute little story. Interesting how how Spot had the guts to stare down a holodeck tiger. Right. Which is like, maybe it's not that big a deal, because it's not real, but... Well, but the cat will think that it's real. Well, exactly. Unless it doesn't smell like a cat. Yeah, see, that's just it. Do, does the holodeck have smell? Well, okay, and Jordy and Beverly in their discussion, right. how they left the right. holodeck running after they left it, they they referred to the to the smell that's being right. given off. And Jordy wants to leave it running to build up the smell. Right. Which is kind of weird. Which I thought was odd because I never thought about it until he mentioned it. That does the holodeck smell? Oh, well, apparently so. The thing is, wh- whose program is this anyway? His. Exactly, his. Who's he? At first, I was thinking, is that Worf? I was assuming Worf is Worf. fighting lions. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, they're they're not specific, and I don't know. I thought it was just kind of weird. Yeah, right. I didn't know who he was. Right. And it wasn't it wasn't easy to figure out. I mean, the, the Worf is about the only thing that that comes to my mind. But I guess it could be for anybody. Maybe it's. Uh, Dr. Alec Holland. Oh, God. Who the heck's that? The Swamp Thing. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And anybody in the DC Comics would enjoy a nice holodeck adventure in the swamp would be him. <laughs> You're true. <laughs> you are for true on that. Uh, and since he apparently joined the, the crew and teleported <laughs> into the future, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, yes. And he would fight alien birds and giant tigers. Right. No, it was... It was... It was not... uh, I don't think this story was meant to be taken seriously. No, of course not. And it certainly wasn't... uh, Yeah, it wasn't meant to be dissected. It was a nice, light little thing. Uh, It's quite a coincidence that during Spot's little journey that he happened to run into the main characters of the story. You know, right. uh, Picard and Riker, Beverly and Jordy. You know, nobody but but you know main characters that Spot happens to come across. Anyway. Yeah, I can understand him slipping past Jordy and, and Crusher. Yeah, but come on, the turbo lift is tiny. Right. Spot is not small, so I think that if a cat was walking around your feet, you would the catch turbo it lift. out of the corner of your <clears> eye. And exactly the movement. You your peripheral vision would have picked up right. the movement. Right. I mean, and, but it's just, he's just sitting there licking his paws as they're talking about whatever they're talking about. It right. just seems, I mean, they're obviously in the middle of a conversation. But right. 
I didn't bother to synopsize. No, you shouldn't. Wasn't worth it. Yeah, so if this, if this if this little story was any longer than it was, I would have found it very tiresome. So it was blissfully short and needed to be. <laughs> All right, anything else? Nada. All right, let's jump into some Deep Space Nine. So this is issue one of the miniseries Hearts and Minds. This particular uh, first issue is titled For the Glory of the Empire. Publish date is June 1994. The writer is Mark A. Altman. Penciler is Rob Davis. Inker is Terry Pallet. Patrick Owsley is the letterer. Albert DeChesney is color design. Mark Panacea is the editor. The cover shows a stern-faced, unhappy Cisco seated at a conference table with an angry Klingon to his right and equally angry Cardassian to his left. Behind them, through a large transparent view, are three Cardassian and three Klingon warships standing toe-to-toe and ready to rumble. The story opens in Sisko's office. Kira is seated at his desk with an unhappy Romulan woman across from her. Kira tells her she can put her on the waiting list, but as of now, all the promenade business space is full. The woman is angry and says she will pay double what her existing tenants are paying. Kira is saved from the uncomfortable situation by a voiceover, the communication system, that is urgently requesting for her to come to ops. Though Kira may have appreciated the excuse for her departure, little did she realize that the excuse involved five Klingon warships approaching the station from five different vectors that surround the station. Meanwhile, Sisko is in a hollow suite with his son Jake taking batting practice. When the call to the bridge comes, he leaves Jake, much to Jake's disappointment. When Sisko enters his office, he is introduced to Captain Cole of the Klingon destroyer Avui. Cole tells Sisko he and his ships are at DS9 to protect the station. A state of war exists between the Cardassians and the Klingon Empire. They have evidence of a Cardassian ship destroying the Klingon ship Katang via a sneak attack. In a menacing way, Cole tells Sisko the Klingon Empire will not let their friends in the Federation stand unprotected, any more than the Federation would allow their allies, the Klingon Empire, to go a war alone. Sisko says he will have to confer with his superiors on this. Cole says fine, and he will be close by when Sisko needs him. Sisko and Kira confer and think it's unlikely the Cardassians would risk war with the Klingons. Meanwhile, Quark's bar is hopping, with many Klingons from the visiting ships. Quark is worried their spirited drinking will result in the bar getting trashed, but old friend Odo is called to ops by Sisko before he can do anything about the Klingons. In his office, Sisko is speaking to Admiral Kernwill about the situation. The Admiral says he is sending Sisko the famed diplomat Tal Barel to help mediate between the Klingons and the Cardassian delegation due to arrive at DS9 soon. Until Barel arrives, it will be up to Sisko to hold together the situation. The Admiral has no conclusive information about the alleged attack by the Cardassians against the Klingon ship in the Gamma Quadrant. Sisko briefs his senior staff on the situation. Odo will get some engineering staff from O'Brien temporarily to help with security. They expect trouble when the Cardassians arrive. 
Sisko tells Dr. Bashir and Dax that he has a special assignment for them. Dax and Bashir are sent to find conclusive evidence of how the Klingon ship was destroyed. If they can find the ship's flight recorder, that would be best. Just as they are making ready for departure, a Klingon shows up saying Captain Cole assigned him to the expedition. Sisko is not happy about this since he was not asked at all, but says it's okay as long as the Klingons realize that Dax is in command. The runabout departs the station and enters the wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant. In ops, Sisko and O'Brien are surprised to see Quark on the main view screen, doing a commercial advertising his bar with two skimpily clad ladies that is insinuating the kind of entertainment the visitors can find there. The commercial is cut short by Odo, who arrests Quark and takes him in custody. Gull Dukat and his three-ship battle group arrive at DS9. The Gull is welcomed aboard by Sisko after he lays down some ground rules limiting the Cardassian presence on the station. Meanwhile, in the Gamma Quadrant, Dax and her team approach the last known coordinates of the Katang, near an inhospitable frozen world in the Lapidaris sector. Back on the station, Gul Dukat and Kotan Marak are shown to their quarters and informed that the mediation will begin at 700 hours. Two Cardassians from the delegation enter Quarks, but rather than pick a fight with Klingons, they try to get 100 bars of gold-pressed latinum from Quark. Apparently, this is an old protection racket debt that these Cardassians are trying to collect on. Quark is playing dumb, and as one of the Cardassians draws his knife to turn up the pressure, the dark, beautiful Saltaria alien, who tried to get Kira to rent her a retail space, inserts herself into the conflict. She ends up taking down both Cardassians and saving Quark's behind. Quark is impressed and asks her to dinner. She accepts. Later, during the dinner, she seduces Quark. She apparently hopes to use him to get what she wants on the station. It's 700 hours and the negotiations have begun. As expected, Captain Cole aggressively states his grievances with the Patak Cardassians. The Cardassians feign ignorance of the attack. On the conference room's viewer, the image of Tal Burrell, the Federation envoy for the talks, comes into focus. He is approaching the station in a runabout and has a few words for the Klingons and Cardassians. They consider his encouraging words, but then suddenly Burrell's runabout blows up just outside the station. To be continued. Poor Burrell. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought he was retired. Although I didn't say that in the uh, synopsis. Apparently right. he was supposedly retired and was brought back out of retirement to mediate this potentially very volatile conflict. So now they need another Beta Z ambassador to negotiate. Do we know any other Beta Z ambassadors? Hmm. Do we? That happens to be on the station? Well, I'm... When I first read this, I had to go back and reread it because I, when they were talking about Burrell, okay, right. just keep going with the story, and then they started talking about the Bajoran um, ambassador, and I'm like, are they talking about Luxwana? And I had to go back and reread that page, and I'm like, oh, it's, it's some It's Tal Burrell, yeah. He just happens to be Beta Dead. Right. So there's more than one. Well, yes, yes. They, 
Right. Other than Deanna's mother, yes. But there's only one Vulcan ambassador, right? And that was Spock's ah. dad, right? He was the only one. Uh, okay, good. I'm just saying that you you know you you get it in your head that anytime they talk about such and such a race, you know, race and that yeah. position, okay, it has to be has to be Spock's dad. It has to be Luxana, uh, Luxana or whatever. And then you're like, oh, I guess there would be other people in those positions. <laughs> yes, there probably would be. <laughs> and this guy apparently is is, is famous. So I, I was kind of wondering if he might have been mentioned in some other. TV episode of one of the series, but maybe not. The name sounds familiar. Burrell sounds like the name of a Bajoran, actually. Okay, but maybe but, it's a maybe it's like Smith, but uh, for <laughs> uh, for Bajorans. Right. Or I mean, not Bajoran. No, I'm saying uh, a Bajoran, not a um, not a Beta Z. Wait oh, a minute. Hmm. He's a Beta Z, right? Not yes. Bajoran. Yeah, he's sorry. Beta Z. Yeah, that previous conversation like probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, well, uh, right. Because I kept saying Bajoran. No, Beta Z. Right. So, uh, well, well, what? Okay, and but in reality, we all know Cisco is going to have to pick up the ball and run with it. Right. They're probably not going to have time to get anybody else, so he's going to be on on the spot. Um. Although I will mention that Tal Burrell looks a little bit like uh like the Doctor from Voyager. When I first saw him on the view screen, I thought he was the Doctor, and I'm right. Like, is it the real Doctor Zimmerman? <laughs> no, it just looks like him. Yeah, it's always interesting that they just so happen to look exactly like humans from Earth. Beta Zeds? Yes. Or just all random people? Well, them. But yes, other random races also, sometimes they look just like humans. But I always kind of wondered about why they made that decision that they looked exactly like humans. Uh, because less makeup? Uh, right, so, so the makeup budget has to go towards Data and Worf for the regular characters, so everybody else has to look human, even ones that aren't. Okay, maybe. Exactly. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> At least you have Odo, which in this comic book they have him doing all kinds of crazy... Mr. Fantastic slash Plastic Man things. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't he even at one point make, like, pliers or something for... Oh, no yes. Reason. Well, supposedly he... I think they were trying to get across he clipped the communication wire or something to shut down Quark's unauthorized commercial being broadcast on all channels. Yes. <laughs> I thought he just unplugged it. I'm like, why do you no. need pincher hand or uh, plier hands to unplug something? Yeah, could... You know, regular hands work pretty good for that. <laughs> but yeah, then he does the, uh, the Mr. Fantastic to pick cork up by the scuff of his neck and pull him exactly. in. Exactly. And if you could do that, it's like, you know, maybe you would more often than he ever did on the TV show. But that costs special effects, so. Right. <clears throat> but yes, I, I get with you on to why all the aliens look human, but it's not always a bad thing because you know, all the all the female humans look, or all the female aliens look remarkably like scantily clad human <laughs> females. Yeah, it makes it a little bit easier when uh, when Kirk's, you know, having relations every other episode. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So I know that we don't normally go off topic because we're always, you know, strictly by what was in this comic book. But mm-hmm. there was a, uh, a, a Predator comic book series 
uh, based on the you know the the Predator franchise, mm-hmm. and in it they had a female Predator, and you know they were talking about how more um, ruthless female Predator was compared to the human Predator. Okay. So I'm looking oh, for the male Predator. Yeah, the, then the male Predator. Excuse me. Okay. So I'm really you know they no, they're not showing her. They're always using like you know camouflaged or whatever so you haven't seen her yet and then when they finally do reveal her she looks just like the male one you know you you can't tell that she's female at all and i'm like yeah that makes sense you know because you know you look at a a male tiger versus a, 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 a um female female tiger you know you don't see usually you know the same curves and stuff that you see in human females versus humans it was like does it make sense that there wouldn't they look just like a human female, but it was a little disappointing because you know you're gonna see some sort of effect of you consider female in right. this alien version of female. Right. Long story short, I get why Trek errors on the side. <clears throat> That's from just yeah, it sure or feeling I guess. That's yeah, you probably relate. Yeah, you probably relate to the characters more. <clears throat> and definitely in the original series, you know, they had budgetary constraints just, that, that they had to the, work with. Just the original series. Well, uh, Next Gen had a lot better budget. And they had better technology by that point. Right. So right. it didn't cost as much to do things. And you could tell they just put a lot more money into Next Gen than they ever did in the original series. Although I wonder, adjusted for inflation, if that's true, but... It, yes, it, yeah. it just seemed like Next Gen spent more money on their episodes. I think it's just because they could do more with what little money they had than they could in the original series. Perhaps. Because, I mean, the original series was backed by a network. Um, yeah. Next Generation was syndicated. I don't I don't know if they had any real budget those first couple seasons. Well, I don't know. And, and I would say that they probably had pretty good budget because they learned that not only can they get first-run money, but they'd be able to rerun this stuff forever. Or at least so they thought. You know, because... Well, they're still... You're right. Because they, they made... BBC America still shows reruns of Next Generation. Oh, do they? Well, yeah. there you go. So, I mean, they... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Star Trek was one of the most rerun... The original series mm-hmm. was one of the most rerun shows going in syndication. So, I think Paramount knew they were going to make a lot of money from rerunning this stuff. So, I think they had more money to invest, but who knows? Yeah, I'm just making up my statistics. I really don't know. (laughs) Sorry. And plus, by that point, when Next Gen came out, they were selling, like, VHS tapes and stuff, right? Were DVDs around by then? I don't remember. No, no, no. It was VHS. Okay, so at least they were selling VHS, so they may, maybe they figured that they had that market too to go after. So right. And another thing is, Star Trek was the, I mean, it was a, a known franchise. Right. You had you know all the baby boomers that grew up on Star Trek, and you had all the people like me that grew up on the movies. So they knew that they were. That I guess Paramount could take more money out, thinking that they could have a real hit here. Right. So. And they were right. They made money hand over fist with that fran- that, yes. that rebooted franchise. Or not reboot, but continuation franchise. Right. Okay, so I thought it was kind of interesting how Dr. Bashir on page 11 was drawn almost like a Negro man. Mm-hmm. Did you notice the style of drawing on page 11? Yeah, he has uh, 
fuller lips and a broader nose than he normally does. Yeah, and even his complexion's a little little different, but more more tan normal. More tan yeah, than normal. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's a bad drawing of him. Yeah, it was interesting. Don't know whether they did that purposely or that's just they just drew it that way. I don't know. But Yeah. I don't know. The other pictures of him on that same page actually look pretty good, so Yeah, exactly. So that's why I was kinda of thrown off by that, but whatever. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a really good drawing towards the end when Burrell's runabout was exploding, you know, like right outside the station. I thought that was drawn pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, boom, <laughs> as the uh, as the lettering, you know, jaggedy lettering with the big exclamation mark at the end was there. You need that in a comic. But when I see an exploding ship, I want to see the ship actually explode, not Parts. just the perfect little silhouette of the ship <laughs> and then just an explosion around it. Right. And then, like, a little starburst in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. I want to see chunks of it flying out, body parts. You know, <laughs> I want it to be realistic. Right. So they chose to just take the moment when the explosion started before it was all the parts were thrown. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it, it looks like maybe the explosion's underneath the ship, since the ship is completely intact. Boom. So they're trying to say that... Um, Rather than so. rather than there being a bomb planted aboard the ship, that actually it's a it's some kind of explosive device that was planted outside of the ship. Could be. No, I don't. I don't think that's what they're actually saying. But when okay. I look at that picture, that's what I would think. It reminds you that's of. The, that's the only way I could explain that big, you know, that big plume of smoke, smoke yeah. and fire, and the yeah, ship right. be intact. Yeah, I agree, because that smoke should be coming out of the ship where the explosive device is good point mm-hmm. I agree but it still looks but, cool no it looks I cool mean, despite it, these problems I think it looks cool yeah I think this issue has really good space ships the ships look good the station look good the ships yep. in relationship to the station look good uh, even the wormhole I thought looked pretty good uh, I have no complaints about the artwork on this issue at all yeah me too I mean I think even the the, the people you know, the people they're drawing look pretty good in general also Right. This girl, this uh, this lady, this mystery lady, who was mm-hmm. seducing Quark. It's like, man. At first, I thought she was like maybe a Romulan or something or a Vulcan, but she's got these uh, these elf ears that really stick out there. So apparently, she's another race, Seltari. I think right. that was the race. So I thought she was uh, an interesting mystery character. Should be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. I, I am enjoying her character so far. Yeah, and so she's you, not. She's not. She's not. You know, she'll she'll kill in order to get what she wants. So she should be interesting to watch what she's going to do later. Yes, she appears formidable. And so, she wears such lovely attire. Ah, uh, yeah. Speaking of lovely attire, did you notice the Bajoran blonde lady on page the bottom of page twenty-one? Um, maybe not. With what appears to be her ex the oh yeah the bottom portion of her um, mammillaries, perhaps yes. being exposed. Yeah, we've seen that a time or two here on Deep Space Nine. Yes. Well, I'm definitely noticing this time. I was like, <laughs> huh? That's a bit I, racy. I don't really see how that works. I mean, I would think gravity would eventually win. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you would have wardrobe malfunctions, but uh, but yeah. uh, exactly. 
I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, so uh, this is a good setup. Obviously, Cisco's going to be under a lot of pressure here to save the day. We'll right. see what Bashir and Dax and the... Runabout. And, and well, and the, and the uh, Klingon, what they discover as far as who the real perpetrators are. Yeah, I thought it was funny that they just let him on. We didn't talk about it, but that seemed yeah. kind of like... Captain Cole said I could go. Oh, 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 Captain Cole said I'm on board. Well, <laughs> yeah, but but you can kind of understand Cisco's position. It's a, yeah, it's no. a little awkward because, you know, they're I mean they're buddies, but still Klingons are kind of jerks in a lot of ways. You know, regular right. Klingons they're pushy, and they're really pushing themselves into this situation, and they're taking the alliance and they're trying to force the Federation into it. Right. Uh, you know, into a war. Which is uh, an interesting position to be in. Right. It's something that the series itself will start to take on in Season 4, I think it is, where Way of the Warrior starts, where the Klingons kind of break away from the Federation, and they want to have a war with the Cardassians. Yeah. Remember, that was their excuse for getting war on Deep Space Nine. So, I, I reading this, I kept thinking, I was like, I wonder if this had any influence on where the series ultimately went or it was just a coincidence. I don't know, man. So, anyway, uh, let's see. Any other comments? That was it. Yeah, the main I don't thing have was the Stretch Armstrong Odo again. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's all I have to say about it. I think it's a, a good tee-up. It's too bad we're not going to revisit this story for a while, but that's okay. Just a week. Just a week. <clears throat> right. I just wanted to mention quickly that just saw the Battlestar Galactica movie. To, mm-hmm. to bring up something different, Blood and Chrome, another sci-fi series, or at least a franchise. I guess it's not going to be a series, unfortunately, because I'd like to see another Battlestar series. Right, but um, Caprica was so good. Battlestar Galactica was so good. And by the way, I like I like Caprica. I thought it was good. It's That's just different. that it wasn't the kind of show that has a lot of exploding ships and space combat and stuff. You know, it was all on Caprica, pretty much, and a few other planets. I, I liked the series myself, although at times it was a little slow. Yeah. Uh, Blood and Chrome is totally the opposite. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's like all it is, space battles and stuff, mostly. Right. So I thought it was good. I liked it. No, um, I, I do want to see that. So the last thing I just want to mention quickly is, because there is a Deep Space Nine connection, uh, and next-gen connection to Battlestar Galactica, of course, Ron D. Moore. One of the writers and producers in Next Gen and Deep Space Nine was also the drive, one of the two driving forces in Battlestar. He and David Ack, unfortunately, in this this movie that just came out, Blood and Chrome, and I, I guess it's not going to be a TV series, unfortunately. Ron D. Moore bowed out of Blood and Chrome, apparently, but David Ack, if I'm saying it right, pronouncing it right, he is uh, involved in this this new movie. It's pretty good. I enjoyed it. Not perfect, but. It's pretty good, high on the action. Okay, to give it a give it a look. Yeah, I kind of wonder what Ron D. Moore is doing these days, though, if he's not involved in this Battlestar Galactica latest uh, effort, because he does it, do some good stuff. Is it Ron D. Moore or B. Moore? I think it's D, but Ron okay. Moore. All right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Ron D. Moore. Anyway, I wonder what sci-fi related series he might be working on for us because he was one of the main producers of Caprica okay yeah maybe I don't know I can't even think of one that's coming out yeah okay well anyway um, 
Wish we had another Battlestar Galactica to watch, but it looks like not. So, I just want to mention well, that. You can always watch uh, Galactica 1980. I think you've said you've never watched those. What, the 1970s? Oh, the season what, the, the original two, season? Where, where they go on Earth and... Oh, that one. Have superpowers. Oh, I saw that. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> okay. have superpowers. Well, they yeah, did. I saw, or at least I saw the, the kids did. I had the... I, I saw, of course, the original series. You know, I was a big Star Wars fan. And then this thing was, like, very derivative of Star Wars in a lot of ways. Uh, the original Battlestar Galactica series. Mm-hmm. And then, and the, but it really wasn't getting the ratings and it was exp- expensive to produce. And then they came up with this idea. Hey, how about if we, they, they go to Earth? And that way we don't have, have to have flying ships anymore. And that'll be a lot cheaper. So that's when they did that. What, Galactica 1980? Is that what they called it? Yep. Yeah, I, yeah, I saw that. I I don't I don't think it was great, mm-hmm. but um, especially with the Adam Twelve guy, you know, being boxy, you know, the, the adult the, boxy Apollo exactly Apollo son, we're all grown up. Right. I was like, wait a minute, what, Kent McCord is that his name? Anyway, I don't. I I could not get away from the fact that he's a cop. What's he doing as a space guy? Well, he was kind of a cop. It was kind of like Chip, because they had the flying motorcycles. So. Most of the time, they were just driving around on motorcycles, and then whenever they needed to, they'd kick them into another gear, and those little flaps would pop out, and then off they go. Oh, God. It wasn't good. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was a very good series. It was okay, but... It was not very good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anything else? No. All right. So we're not going to do any elsewhere, since we've already covered uh, these months in other places, so... I guess we'll just close up shop and wait for countdown number three next week. Oh, sounds good. All right. So until next week, guys, take care and talk to you later. Thanks for joining us on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star t comicbookreview at gmail.com Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name book review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here